Grace, grace, all grace. It's all about grace, start to finish, beginning to end. It's how we are saved. And it is that amazing grace that we're focusing on today here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. From Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Greetings and welcome to our program today. We have a variety of passages we'll be spending time in today as we take a look at this amazing grace, this salvation that is a genuine offer by God. We'll be in, a, again, a variety of scriptures, spending the bulk of our time in Titus chapter 1. Christ is called Savior, and for good reason. He does save us, and He does so by grace. Amazing grace. Join us as we look at it together next. With this edition of Graceful Truth Now, our teacher and pastor once again. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. You can turn in your Bibles over to Titus, Titus chapter 2. And uh, we're looking at verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is writing here to his fellow worker in the faith, um, young pastor, And Paul wanted to encourage him through this letter. Our God is a gracious God. And that's the one thing that Paul is pointing out here to Timothy. In verse 11 when he says, For the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? Well, here he tells us that that appearance is referring to the incarnation of Christ. When Christ came down forsaking all that he knew in heaven, came down and and, and entered a human body, the very God who created us, and lived 30-some years here on this sin-stained earth so that one day he could go to a cross and endure physical and spiritual pain for us. Our God, at the very heart, is a saving God. We need to remember that. That God has mercy on those that hate him. That God has grace and mercy toward those that have offended him, that have blasphemed him, that even ignore him at times. Those who violate his commandments. God doesn't say, okay, that's it. I've had it. No. He reaches out to us through his marvelous, amazing grace because of his love. The Bible says that our God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure at all. The Bible tells us that our God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge and that, that of the blessed truth of the gospel and deli- be delivered from the wages of their sin, which is death. 
I mean, last week we looked at several verses, but I mean, one that really just cries this and, and yells this is John 3.16. And we know it so well, and we've seen it at ball games and NFL things and all sorts of th- banners hanging up all over the place. But it really speaks to the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God saw a world of sinners. When he looked at the world, he saw a world of sinners. And he saw that it was directly sinning against him. It offended him. It blasphemed him. It dishonored him. It violated him. It broke his law. And yet, rather than in anger, squash us like a bug, he reached out to us in love. And he sought not to destroy us, but to what? To save us. See, the simple message of Christianity is that God saves men from sin. We heard it this morning in Crisanto's testimony. That's the Christian message. That should be the message of the church. We don't have a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. Oh, you want to come to our church where you can't do this, you can't do that. We're not about that. The message that God saves sinners from their sin is the message that our missionaries carry to the uttermost parts of the world. It's the message that all that has rung throughout all church history. The simple message that God saves what? Sinners. God saves sinners. God came and his name was Jesus And that name, Jesus, says that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save what? That which is lost. And we looked at various verses. One was 1 Timothy 2, 3, where it says, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Isaiah 43, 11 said, and there is no Savior besides me. God enjoys speaking of himself as a savior. Micah chapter 7, it says, Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity? Aren't you glad that our God is willing to pardon our sinfulness? I mean, why would we be here if he wasn't? I don't know about you, but I'd be, I'd be hiding somewhere from this God if he wasn't a gracious God. Who is a saving God like thee? Micah records. See, we have to remember that Nothing God has ever done and nothing God will ever do in time displays the fullness of his glory as does salvation. That's why he's left us here. That's why we read earlier in chapter 2 about all these different age groups, all these different genders of people and, and telling them how to live in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Because he wants us while we're here on earth to be adorned with his grace. So that when people look at our lives, they don't look at somebody who's, you know, a legalistic, religious, pious person. That doesn't, that's not going to draw people to the Savior. That's going to repel them. He wants to see men and women and children who have been converted by the glorious grace of Christ and the power of the gospel. And when they see that, they see God on display. That's the heart of God to save Sinners. We looked at a couple definitions. Just way of review, God's grace was his unmerited favor. That's kind of the classic definition. God giving us something that we don't deserve. We also looked at mercy. God is, God's mercy is his withheld justice. Mercy is God withholding something from us that we do deserve. 
as far as judgment goes. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. God's grace His amazing grace is the simple fact that God showed favor and blessing on us even though we did not deserve it in any way. We didn't earn it in any way. What we deserve, we deserved his judgment. We deserved his wrath. But what did he give us? He gave us his grace. He gave us his mercy. We spoke how God operates not on the merit system that the world operates. You know, the harder you you work, the bigger the promotion, the more money you have, all that stuff. That's the merit system. You know, the harder you practice, the better you can play, the more you're going to get accolades in sports. That's the merit system. God doesn't operate on that system. He operates on the system of substitution. He looks at us and says, you know what? There's no hope for you. You can work till your dying day. You're never going to be able to appease the sins that have offended me. You can't pay for your own sin. It's impossible. I have to substitute someone else for you that is willing and able to pay for your sin, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice, preordained even before the foundation of the world, to become the Savior. And so we come to God's present grace. And we looked at how, from a sinner's point of view... When it says there in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, the one thing we looked at was we went through the Gospel of John and we saw where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he also says, whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. See, there's a lot of people who subscribe to the doctrine of election, which is a biblical doctrine. The idea that God... Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us that he set his love upon some. He chose them out to be his people. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible also says that whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. And so you have a tension there. Because if you go full, whole, you know, bore into the election idea, you end up in a fatalistic attitude. Well, why do anything? If God's got it all figured out, why should we go witness? Why should we pray? Why should we do anything? If God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, he controls everything. Sounds like an egomaniac. All those things are true about God. He controls all. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. All those things are true. Election is a true doctrine. But don't allow the doctrine of election to take you into the fatalistic camp that, that basically tells, tells you to give up. Don't do anything. Because we still have scriptures that says, whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. It doesn't say, whosoever, if you're elect. (laughs) It doesn't say that. See, it's not our job to discover who's chosen and who's not. It's our job to take the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world who is desperately in need of his forgiveness and his salvation. See, it's a matter of faith. From the human side, it's a matter of faith. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a matter of belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. And what we tell sinners today is the same thing the apostles told sinners. What did Jesus and the apostles say to those who were sinners? They said what? Believe. Believe. And and in believing, what I mean by that is, It includes repentance. It includes turning from sin. It includes obedient submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is involved in us believing in Christ. 
And God is a, a saving God. It says that not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 15 says, And whoever, whoever, wide open invitation there, believes may in him have eternal life. And that's followed by John 3.16, John 6.51, John 1.29. John the Baptist himself said, Behold the Son of God who takes away what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we talked about, well, wait a minute. We got into the discussion a little bit about, well, is, is, did, did Christ die for the whole world? says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5, and 6, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Unqualified statement. No exception there. 1 John 2, 2 says he himself is our propitiation or satisfaction for our sins and not ours only but for those of the whole world. And we talked about the idea that, you know what, if you believe when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the whole world, are you saying that you're a universalist? The idea that everybody's going to heaven because Jesus died for the whole world. And we broke that down a little bit and we said, well, people benefit from the sacrifice of Christ. People benefit from God's grace, even though they don't come to Christ for salvation. The very fact that they're walking around living and breathing is God's grace upon them. They're lucky they're not dead. We're lucky we're not dead. Why? Because we violated God's commands. We violated God's orders to us. And so as a result of that, he doesn't treat us like the angels. Immediately as the angels violated the principles of God and the law of God, he judged them immediately. He doesn't treat us like the angels. The angels can't taste of God's grace. There's no being saved for an angel. Once you cross that line and you become a demon, you're always going to be a demon. They, they can't come back and repent. But as human beings, as part of his creation, God is pointing out to us that, you know what? He loved creation. He loved everyone so much that he sent someone to die for the sins of the world. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for those of the whole world. And see, people in the universalist camp say, see, there it is. Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying at all. Someone asked me after last week's message, would you believe in limited atonement? Do you believe that the payment that Christ paid on the cross... Did he pay the sins for all the world or did he just pay for the sins for those who were chosen? I believe the scripture teaches very clearly, and we're going to look at that right now, that when Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins of those who are the elect. It's very clear. And we'll look at these verses. And you say, well, how does that jive with what you taught last week? You said that he's the savior of all the world. That's exactly right. He is. He's the only mediator there is. He's the only Savior there is. There, there can't be another Savior. And so when it says there in John 2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for those of the whole world. In other words, 
he paid the sins for the elect. But you know what? If you're not part of the elect, if you're just somebody else, there's no other way to be saved other than the sacrifice of Christ. He's the only one that is available. It tells us that there's only one mediator in 1 Timothy. One God and one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a second or a third or a fourth. There's not many doors that lead to heaven. There's only one. And so in, in, in that reasoning, he is the only one for the whole world. He gave his ransom, his life, a ransom for all. In the Old Testament, when you have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they do sacrifices, and they basically use that, that time generally to satisfy God for a temporary time. Now, everybody that fell under that whole, that whole covering of Yom Kippur doesn't mean they were saved. It's speaking in a nationalistic sense. And so... We see that Christ did die for the whole world, but his atonement, his efficacy, the, 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 the real practicality of him paying for people's sins begins to limit itself. 1 Timothy 4.10, at the end of the verse, it says, The living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So all of a sudden we come from John 3.16, For God's to love the world. And then here it says, He's the Savior of all men, especially believers. Qualifying statement there. In some way, all men enjoy the grace of God. I mean, they breathe the same air we breathe. They get up just like we get up. That's all because of the grace of God. It's common grace. So there's a sense in which the saving work of Christ has temporarily purchased deliverance from judgment by God for everybody. Because everybody's still here. If that weren't the case, as soon as you sinned, your life would be snuffed out. It'd be game over. No grace at all. And in the Old Testament, they would use that day of atonement to kind of atone for the sins of the nation in, in the sense that God forgave their sins as a nation and set aside his judgment temporarily. But it doesn't guarantee that everybody in the nation was saved. That was a matter of faith. That was a matter of election. But it does delay God's immediate judgment. And we closed last week by looking at John 15. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his, the whole world. No, it says for his friends. And who are his friends? It says, You are my friends if you do what I command. All of a sudden, you see the thing beginning to narrow. Jesus isn't saying here, a greater love has no man because I laid down my life for everybody. No, he said he laid it down for his friends. Who are his friends? Those who are obedient to him. Those who do what he has commanded. What does he command us to do? To believe and be saved. Jesus said that over and over again. Repent, follow me, obey me. If you do that, you're my friends. And down there in verse 15, just so we understand what's going on here, he makes sure that he puts this in there by the way, you didn't choose me, I chose you. We're right back to that paradox of a matter of faith from the human side and a matter of choice and election from God's side. On the one hand, we see whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. Who is going to do that? Those who are elect. The word atonement in the Old Testament, just so you understand, is a very general term. 
It wasn't really specific. Used a lot of times of the, the nation of Israel. It's not even really used in the New Testament. There's one place in Romans 5.11, and we translate it reconciliation, which means bringing back to a proper standing with someone. And when you stop and you think about it, when Christ died on the cross, you have to ask yourself this question. Was that a potential atonement? Or was that a very real atonement? Was that a particular atonement? We believe the Bible teaches, I believe the Bible teaches, that it was a particular atonement. It wasn't a potential atonement. Those who would teach it's a potential atonement say this. Well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and he died for everybody. He paid the sins for the entire world. But the only time that you get to cash in on that forgiveness that he paid for is when you, in your sinful state, somehow conclude that you need a Savior and you begin to seek after God, and you begin to w- express your, your, they call it free will, and acknowledge that Jesus needs to be your Savior, and then therefore you'll be saved based on your choice of God. Because he made it available on the cross that everybody, no matter who you are, could come to the Savior. Everybody's sins are paid for, but that sinful Uh, blotting out that forgiveness is not realized until you, of your own accord, put your faith and trust in Christ. That's what they would teach. That's why John said here, or in in John it's recorded, Jesus said, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Just so we're we're on the straight up here. It's very important that you understand that. So do you believe that when Christ died on the cross, he died for everybody? In one sense he did. Temporarily. Temporarily. His death on the cross allows us to experience the grace of God, that common grace. We're still here, we're still breathing, even though we violated his law. But when you carry it to a further position, you say, well, wait, but did he literally pay for everybody's sins? You'd have to say no, or everybody would be in heaven. So his sacrifice, in some sense, is unlimited, in that everybody kind of expresses Uh, It comes under the umbrella of God's common grace. But when it comes down to paying for sins, it was particular. It was individual. This is interesting. Even John Calvin, you know, where you get Calvinism from. John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 John 2.2, says that this, The provision of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all. It was sufficient for all. And the reason it was sufficient for all was because there was nothing else. (laughs) There was nothing else to provide for the sacrifice of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. But there's limited application in that sacrifice. The application of his sacrifice is limited to those who believe. And so you stop and you say, well, who are those who are going to believe? Well, the answer clearly is not everybody. Right? Or we wouldn't have hell. We wouldn't have unbelievers. Even 2 Thessalonians, Paul wrote it, not all have faith. Not everybody is going to believe. So in that sense, this unlimited sacrifice, this opportunity for many, is limited in some sense to those who believe. And not everybody is going to believe. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.